Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Two Gals and a Mic podcast. I'm your host, Sue Kerver, and on today's show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Aaron McMichael, who spent 15 years as a 911 dispatcher and became an equine therapy instructor to help veterans and military members who struggle with PTSD. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. Well, I'm glad to have you here. Why don't we start by talking about your equine therapy? Because I know that that's something that's really important to you. Uh, how did you first get started in that? Well, I was still working in the dispatch center and I had just been diagnosed with PTSD myself. One of the firefighters that I dispatched for sent out a kind of a blanket email to everybody saying, hey, check out this program my wife's involved with. They're doing equine therapy for military and veterans and I thought, okay, what better population to learn about PTSD from than these folks? And I've always just absolutely been in love with horses. So it just made sense to get involved. I started off as a volunteer and a couple of years later, I was the interim director of the program. So it very quickly escalated. Had you worked with horses before or grown up on a farm or anything like that? I grew up with horses. My best friend growing up, they worked cattle. Their whole family did. Um, so we spent our summers working cattle with her family out on the reservation in Yakima. Did you stop dispatching at that time and move full into nonprofit world or did you do both? How did, what did that look like? I did both for a while. It was about four years in. I literally had the call that was the one that broke the camel's back and I had to quit dispatching. There was about four years that I took off and I did a lot of self-discovery. And then I went back and I made it not quite a year. And I was like, okay, nope, it's all coming back. I don't want anything to do with this. So I walked away again. To make my life less stressful, I started working in suicide prevention. So what did you do with suicide prevention? So I actually work for the Washington National Guard and I was their suicide prevention coordinator for about four and a half years. And then I have just recently taken the position on the integrated primary prevention workforce, which is a new program that's rolling out nationwide. Every branch of the service is getting an integrated primary prevention workforce. I am the self-directed harm prevention specialist, which includes suicide and substance abuse or substance misuse. And then we also have domestic violence and workplace violence and then sexual assault. Wow. That's a lot of really hard subject matter to deal with. How do you do that? So with what I do now, it's mostly in administrative work and we're developing policies and looking for new programs. Um, I'm not dealing with individuals in distress directly. Actually, I've just recently discovered in the last couple of weeks that that's the part that I miss. Yeah. So let's take a step back and let's talk about your time as a 911 dispatcher, because that definitely is what you just described, dealing one-on-one -on -one with people who are certainly in crisis where something is going on. You've spent or had spent 15 years in that role. How did you get involved in that work in the first place? Uh, it's kind of the family business. So my dad is a retired fire chief. My brother is a firefighter paramedic and has been for almost 30 years now. My grandfather and his father, I mean, it goes back generations. I don't quite understand how that happened, but our family just gravitates towards working in the fire service. I actually started off dispatching for a very small police jurisdiction here in the state. 
I spent two years doing that and then moved over to fire and medical aid. And then I tried working at a large scale uh, 911 center. And that was just, that was absolutely not for me. Do you feel like being a dispatcher changed you? Oh, it changed me multiple times when I was working strictly police. I did that for two years and I I think I kind of got out just in time because it gave me this jaded view of the world. I was suspicious of everyone. I thought everyone was a criminal. Everyone was a dirtbag. When you deal with that for 10, 12 hours a day, you get into that mindset where you're like suspicious of everyone. And then when I switched over to the fire and EMS side, towards the end, it was a very helpless feeling. You have people that you're talking to that are calling you for help on the other end of the phone. There's only so much that you can do. And a lot of times it did not end well. And I I can't even tell you how many people that my voice was the last thing that they heard. There was not a shift that went by where you didn't have someone who came in and found their loved one deceased or near death from suicide or someone who had tried doing something else to harm themselves and then changed their mind and reached for the phone, you know, that starts to weigh heavily on you, of course. And then that was kind of my motivation to go into suicide prevention because I could try to get in front of it. Yeah. And you mentioned earlier in the podcast that you had gotten some help for PTSD. So is this that you're describing where that PTSD stemmed from? A lot of it was from my work. And then I also had a horrible personal tragedy while I was at work. I was sitting conversing with one of my coworkers and a call popped up on the screen for dispatch. The coworker that I had just been visiting with looks at me and her face just went sheet white. And she asked me, what's Don's address? And Don was another one of our coworkers who was also my sister-in-law who had my kids for the day. My ex-husband and my brother were both on 24-hour shifts as firefighters. And I was in the dispatch center. So my sister-in-law had all five kids. They had three and we had two. Like I said, the person that I was just talking to said, what's Don's address? And I turned and looked at the screen and it's my brother and sister-in-law's address that came up on the screen. So I immediately picked up the line and I said, this is Aaron, what's going on? And it was my nephew who was the oldest of the five kids, 10 years old at the time. And he said, Krista fell in the pond and mom's doing CPR on her. And that's my, at the time, 18 month old daughter. I freaked out, of course, as anyone would. And to make a long story short, she did not survive. And so the trauma of losing a child, which anyone knows is the worst thing that could ever happen to you as a parent, but also for it to have happened when I was at work and for me to pick up the phone, obviously just made it a million times worse. And then the straw that broke the camel's back that I told you about was actually several years later, it was my parents' address that came up on the screen. And I click on the line and it is my grandmother and she is just hysterical. My dad had had his knee replaced a couple of days before and she was trying to take him outside to get some exercise. He grabbed onto the deck railing, which gave way and he fell down. He's fine, she's fine, bumps and bruises. You know, dad had to have his knee restitched, no big deal. But the, the way the room was set up where I was sitting in the room, 
someone I love on the other end of the phone telling me that they need help for someone else that I love, I just lost it. I couldn't go back after that. I can imagine. I mean, that's just absolute tragedy. How did you overcome? A lot of therapy, a lot of soul searching. The horses were amazing. The people that I met through working with the horses, the people that I was able to help with working with the horses. The reason why equine therapy works is because there's just such an amazing connection between people and horses. And it's not there for everybody. You know, when I first started doing equine therapy, I thought, oh my gosh, I have found the cure to PTSD. And all I have to do is get these people a horse to spend the day with and they'll be fine. Well, no, not exactly. (laughs) One of the guys that was in one of my classes, of course, he was the typical soldier that None of us knew how bad he was struggling. None of us knew that he was going home and drinking excessively every night and was actively suicidal. We just saw this bright, shiny, happy-go-lucky person that would show up at the barn and really enjoyed the equine therapy. And it did help him make some progress. But then he went on a retreat with Warriors on Quiet Waters and went out there to where you're at in Montana and just had an amazing time. And it was so cathartic for him and and just so healing for him that he immediately came home, bought a boat and started taking other veterans out fishing. You're now connecting with a veteran who was in need. And I think it's a very important point that you made. Didn't outwardly show that he was in need. Yes. He did that. but you kept after him. He kept after the healing process and together, obviously there's a success story. You collectively created this nonprofit entity that uses nature as a powerful healer. The equine therapy program had lost its funding and was going under and I got laid off. So I had a lot of time on my hands and had a lot of nonprofit experience So we got together and Got Your Six Fishing was born. He did fly fishing and gear fishing, mostly for steelhead on the rivers around here, expanded out into some different things, tried actually doing some of the like crabbing and clamming and those kinds of things, and then drilled it down to what was the most effective was actually the drift boat steelhead fishing. So is he still actively doing this? And are you still actively part of this nonprofit? So... We were never able to keep a very strong board of directors. And right at the beginning of COVID, they merged with another program that we had actually been working closely with called Outdoors for Our Heroes. And they did the hunting side. Outdoors for Our Heroes had always had a very strong, very dedicated, very hardworking board of directors. We helped them out. They helped us out. We did, there was some collaboration with grant writing and all that kind of stuff. So it just made sense. So we merged the two together. So how about the equine therapy? Did that play any role in this nonprofit that you collectively started? And if not, what are you doing with your equine therapy experience now? They were completely separate entities, one born out of the other, I suppose you could say. I'm not currently working in equine therapy. I have a horse that I own that is currently doing equine therapy And apparently he is an absolute rock star at it. And they absolutely love him down there at the barn. And so I have him on loan out there. 
So I'd like to explore this idea of equine therapy a little bit more. I've had mm-hmm. a very limited exposure to it. And my exposure was approaching a horse, brushing a horse's mane, brushing other parts of the horse. And Aaron, if I'm totally honest with you, I'm a bit terrified of horses. <laughs> I got, I got thrown off a horse at one point in my life. And so me approaching this very large, majestic, beautiful animal caused uh, some anxiety in sure. me. So how, how do you do that? What is equine therapy? What are some of the actual practical things that a person who's going through equine therapy could expect or could do? Starting off is exactly what you did, you know, grooming and leading and groundwork, establishing that relationship with the horse. And that's something that the more time you spend around the horse, obviously the less afraid you're going to be and the more of a relationship you're actually establishing. And it's just incredible to watch people blossom as that occurs. It's not something that I can like explain exactly what happens. I've just seen it firsthand and it's absolutely amazing. It restores the confidence people have in themselves because they figure out, you know, if I can tell this 11, 1200 pound animal what to do, and they're going to follow me because we have established this relationship, then obviously that translates into their relationship with people. That's a really good point because one of the other parts of, again, my very limited exposure with equine therapy is we were asked to lead a horse around a field. And unbeknownst to me, we could choose from three different horses. I chose the ornery one that really didn't... (laughs) like to listen. Here I am with a massive animal who is giving me side eye and not necessarily interested in listening. And I'm thinking, how is this going to work? But for me, it was learning in a very short amount of time to put aside some of that control and just trust in the process. Would you say that that's an accurate description or did I just have a one-off weirdo horse? Oh no, that's hundred percent accurate. hundred percent. Because with horses, it's not about control. It's about collaboration. It's about working with the horse, not telling the horse what to do. And you know, there are different disciplines where it is telling the horse what to do, but that comes from training, which is developed from a relationship. So how do you get that collaboration? I would assume that you have to go more than one time. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And most equine therapy programs are a minimum of eight weeks, you know, where it's usually like a one, one and a half, sometimes two hour session per week. And it's building the relationship from the ground up. And it actually takes a very special kind of horse to do this work because there are horses that are like one person horses. They bond with one person. And there's other horses that are like, hey, I don't care who you are. If you want to play with me, I'm, I'm, I'm here. You shared that great story about your partner whom you ended up establishing the nonprofit with and his connection with nature. Do you have a great story that you can share about someone who has established a great connection through equine therapy and ended up being very successful as a result of this type of therapy? Tons of stories. The greatest thing about horses is you learn about horses, you know, you learn horsemanship, you learn about the grooming and the tack and how to do things with horses. But at the same time, the horses are teaching you more about yourself than you're learning about them. And one of the most powerful interactions that I have 
ever seen with a horse. We work directly with Veterans Administration Hospital that is in Lakewood, and they brought out a whole van full of folks from the domiciliary, which is the people that live there at the VA. And there was this one gentleman who was a very tall man, but he had had a severe debilitating stroke and he was no longer able to walk and was nonverbal. And he had this really cool wheelchair that actually sat him up higher because he was used to being, you know, he was a tall man. He was used to being up high. We brought one of the horses over. As soon as we brought the horse over to this gentleman, his face just kind of lit up. And then the horse gently reached down and pressed her nuzzle against his arm. And he made this sound that I can only describe as pure joy. And he was just so tickled that this horse was there interacting with him. Everybody was in tears and it was just amazing to see. That's really amazing. And it sounds like there's a lot of empathy that's built into this, which I mean, can horses be empathetic? Oh, absolutely. In fact, the best therapy horses are often ones that come from rescue situations where they've been neglected or abused. They absolutely make the best therapy horses because they connect with these warriors in ways that other creatures can't. Yeah, it's definitely empathy because it's here's what's broken in me connecting with what's broken in you or what was broken. Sort of circling back to the beginning of the podcast when you were talking about your dispatch career and then going into suicide prevention and still working with veterans and still working with military members, I would imagine that those experiences and exactly what you just said, sharing those shared experiences has made you an empathetic person. So how are you using this gift for both yourself and for others? I guess I would say empathy is like my superpower. There are people that can walk in a room and I can literally feel what they're feeling. It helps me to recognize the need for connection and to go seek it from them because they don't, a lot of times don't know to seek it for themselves. They don't know that that connection is what they're really looking for. And that's another fun story. One of the guys that was one of my students in equine therapy, he has a miniature horse as a service animal and he was in Walmart. So they're walking in Walmart and the horse is pulling him a certain direction. He's like, no, we're we're going this way. We're going to go get milk, buddy. Come on, let's go. And the horse got obstinate and was pulling him a different direction. And finally he just gave up. He's like, all right, fine, go. I'll follow. They go down this aisle And there's this woman who is obviously in distress and she is having some sort of panic attack or anxiety attack or something. And she's crying and her friend is there and trying to help her and trying to get her to pull herself together enough to get her out of the store. Basically, they walk up to her and her face just lights up and she's like, oh my gosh, I'm at your horse at Walmart. What's going on here? And she just starts petting him and crying and they just instantly had this amazing connection and she was able to completely pull herself together and they exchanged information so she could see him again. And it was just wonderful. So from three aisles away, this little miniature horse sensed what was going on and drug his partner over to help this woman. That's an amazing story. 
And it really resonates with me because I had a similar situation. Now, not with a miniature horse. As you were talking about this story, I was thinking about air travel and flying. Flying is not something I always love to do. I was also thinking, how would one get a miniature horse on an airliner? But that's a whole (laughs) different conversation. But I remember it was uh, right around Christmas time a couple of years ago, and I had to fly from Florida back to Texas. And there was a lot going on at that time in my life. And much like the woman in the aisle, I was in complete disarray before I had to board this flight and get on this flight. Everything in my body was like, don't do it. Don't do it. And, and yet I still had to. So I get on this plane and it's open seating. I'm looking for the first available seat. Cause I just want to sit down, get settled in and be done with it. And as I walk on the plane, the very first aisle there, there's a young man with his service dog and the service dog is lying between the seats and the bulkhead. And this man is seated in the aisle. And I think probably the crazy state I was in, he sensed something was going on. So he very kindly moved to the window seat and allowed me to take that aisle seat. And when we got to talking, the dog had a vest on and it was very obvious that this person was a veteran. So I asked this person about his military experience and instantly we had that connection and instantly we started to talk and to share a little bit, but his service dog ended up being a huge asset for me. And as fate would have it, this man was traveling to the same destination that I was traveling to. So we we got off this flight. We made the connection in the airport. We got on the next flight. We sat together. I had the opportunity to take the entire journey with him and his service dog. And the best part of that story is we ended up becoming really good friends through that experience. And we're still friends to this day. But In that moment, his kindness to a complete stranger and the dog's ability to empathetically connect with me and sense that I just needed that little something shifted everything. So I think that there's a lot to be said about that empathy that creates that connection between human and animal. That was a total serendipitous meeting. And I love that you stayed in contact with him. Oh yeah. He's an army veteran. He's a great, great person. Unfortunately, his dog has since passed, which was devastating, I think, to a lot of people because that dog had a really big impact on a lot of folks. But that was quite an adventure for me to decide to take that trip, even though I didn't necessarily want to get on the plane. Let me ask you this. What is the best adventure that you've ever had? Oh, wow. That's a really good question. Uh, huh. I don't know. I'm guessing it hasn't happened yet. That gives me something to look forward to, right? Well, what's an adventure that you would like to have? What's on your bucket list? It's really kind of funny because I've only recently gotten back to the point where I can actually start looking forward and looking to the future. Even though I've done a lot of therapy and things to heal myself, I never got to a place where I was able to get past the fear, but dread. I I don't know what you would call it. For many, many, many years, I could not look past next week. And my mind 
you know, the, the future is not something that's promised. It's not something that's guaranteed. And it's really only been recently that that's opened up for me again. So I'm kind of in a state of flux right now. I don't know where I'm going with my life. I don't know what the future holds, but I know that the future is there and I need to start planning for it. So it sounds like this is something that's taken you a really long time to figure out. How did you get there? How did you make that shift? A lot of it had to do with just educating myself. I'm, I'm a total nerd. You know, when I was diagnosed with PTSD, I started reading about it, hanging out with veterans and military members. You know, I just, I invested myself in learning all about it. So that's basically what I've been doing over the last several years is figuring out that no, getting everybody with a horse is not going to cure them. Getting everybody on a boat with a fly fishing rod is not going to cure them. It's really just about finding what works for you. And what really ended up allowing a shift for me was being vulnerable and, and open enough with other people and really connecting, which was something I had avoided for so long because I felt so broken and so damaged. So do you think that you're at a position right now where you can start to visualize the future long-term? Like, where do you see yourself in 10 years? In 10 years, I want to be retired. I want to take long horse rides and camping trips and things like that, which I've done a lot of, of camping with horses and a lot of trail rides, but I want to go do some of the really long treks where you, you pack in and you're gone for days, just you and your horse and your gear. How about shorter term? Because now we are a couple of months into this brand new year. And I know at the beginning of the year, everybody likes to make resolutions. They like to set goals and then time marches on and you start to get into a year and those resolutions and those goals become a little bit less important. What are you focusing on for 2024? The biggest thing that I'm focusing on for 2024 is just being my authentic self. You know, for so long, I've just, I've always been such a people pleaser and living my life for other people and doing what they want me to do and not even considering what I want. So now that's my goal for 2024 is to figure out what I want, what I want to be when I grow up. I'm 51 years old and I want to figure out what I'm going to be when I grow up. <laughs> What's your process for doing that? I think a lot of it just has to do with really listening to my inner self. I have shut her down and shut her off for so long that I almost forgot what that voice sounded like. So I've got to reacquaint myself. So what has she said? What's something that you've recently discovered about yourself? The biggest thing is that I am capable of being vulnerable. I always associated it with a, with a negative emotion, even though it was what I was telling other people to do. And what I was wanting other people to do, I was only willing to do it with my four-legged friends. So now I'm really working on opening up to my two-legged friends. What does vulnerability look like for you, Erin? I'm one of those people that I don't make friends easily, but I keep them for a very long time. And my two best friends I have known for over 35 years. and. I was not allowing them to see all of me because I was not allowing myself to be vulnerable with them. 
I've heard you talk about authenticity, Mm -hmm. heard you talk about vulnerability. Any other advice that you might give to anyone who's chasing a goal or just wanting to do things a little bit differently? I think the biggest favor that you can do for yourself is listen to yourself. There have been several times where because I thought it was silly or I thought it was stupid or I thought it was, you know, wrong or embarrassing, I shut down my own inner voice and I stopped listening to myself. And that was probably the worst thing I could have ever done. And now that I've opened myself back up to that, opened myself back up to connections, it really is life-changing. I mean, even just things like going into the grocery store, I see people differently. Not that I'm expecting to have some deep, meaningful connection with every person that I run across, but I'm open to that possibility. Which is so great because that has to be a lot different than how you've described things previously being, right? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Erin, for sharing your experiences and your insights with all of us. You certainly have overcome a lot of challenges and it is really, really exciting to see how you're now using your empathy and all of your experiences to continue to help veterans and military members navigate through the healing process. And thank you listeners for tuning in. Be sure to like and subscribe and then join me back here next Friday for another amazing woman and another amazing story on the Two Gals in a Mic podcast. We'll see you next week.